0: Thank <laughs> you.
1: Listener, welcome back to General Snobbery, where Matt and I talk about movies and sometimes talk about philosophy, just
0: kind of when we want to, but mostly just kind of laugh about stupid shit. Nice. That was the, uh, that was probably the most concise intro we've ever had. <laughs> yeah, I think so.
1: <laughs> I've listened to other podcasts, and usually they say what the podcast is at the beginning, so I thought, in case we got a new listener for some Buster Scruggs action, we should like tell them what's going on.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. So um, yeah, today, as Sean you said, and as we have noted before, the titles of the episodes always indicate uh, <laughs> the movie is "The Ballad of Buster Scruggs," written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, our mm-hmm. favorite Cohen brothers, starring uh, a lot of people, including Franco? some, yeah, Franco definitely not uh, Dave, <laughs> not uh, Dave. <laughs> but tommy why
1: <laughs> yeah tommy why <Wiseau. laughs>
0: let's see we also have we have gleason and neeson <laughs> they need to make a movie called the eason brothers about two irish mobsters in boston
1: <laughs> that's right they're both irish aren't they yeah <laughs> two irish mobsters in boston just remake the departed but like call it the <laughs> eason brothers
0: <laughs> yeah it's it's the exact same plot as the departed <laughs> but it's called the eason brothers and they meet um they meet the boondock saints of course <laughs> god i boondock would love Saints have like a little cameo at the end just to expand the cinematic universe <laughs> yeah it's like how the the original avengers how the very end had thanos <laughs> oh the original one really like after the credits bridges yeah and he no, just no, sort of like not bridges um Bar- not Bardem, brolin. brolin brolin <laughs> <laughs> but we just named like several coen brothers actors i know yeah bridges and brolin and i almost said Bardem. oh Bardem, yeah quarter, quarter. <laughs> <laughs> Watch your lucky quarter <laughs> before the episode started listener sean and i were each doing impressions of anton Chigurh, javier javier yeah i oh man i'd say probably the scariest real life villain since uh hannibal lecter in my opinion
1: hmm
0: and uh and voldemort <laughs> ray fiends <laughs> <laughs> yeah actually not voldemort just ray fiends <laughs> <laughs> yeah something is completely horrifying about sugar yeah i think
1: it's his haircut the haircut's a big thing kind of the pallid gaze and maybe the fact that he uses that cattle killing device to kill humans just wow. to kind of
0: indicate what his perspective of humanity is I would like... Who again wrote uh, those books? Cormac McCarthy. Cormac, that's right. (laughs) I would love to see a children's book written by Cormac McCarthy. (laughs) Actually, I think The Road was his attempt at a children's book. That's probably the closest he'll ever get to a children's
1: (laughs) book. (laughs) Like gruesome mutated humans in some like basement cellar.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Who are literally eaten. Uh, Yeah. Man. That, uh, That movie, The Road... That had Mordenson, yeah, and Duval. It
0: did, yeah. Duval is an old vagrant who eats a lot. Of, who eats canned fruit? True, very true. Hmm.
1: So, who else is in Scruggs? We got uh... oh Nelson, Tim Blake Nelson. Tim Blake He's, Nelson. He starts off the show
0: as the titular character. Yeah, he does, and he does a wonderful job as like a sort of a stereotype of a flashy American cowboy. Hmm. Yeah. The type you would see in a neon sign over Las Vegas.
1: Yeah. That's a a good way of putting
0: it. It's like super clean, like not dirty wearing a white shirt and a pristine white hat. It's yeah. I mean, just
1: perfectly dressed like ironed clothing.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I, I feel like a lot of that has to do with the Coen brothers love of like the history of film and how the old cowboy movies, they were like not realistic. If they would have had cowboys like Buster Scruggs. Right. It's like, yeah. I don't think that man actually ever existed in the world. No, no. He's like a very jolly, happy-go-lucky outlaw. Yeah. He's almost like a an idea or an ideal or like, here's a, here's a crazy one that I just thought of, like a specter of the American West, like a ghost. Hmm. And there's that scene when he like pats his body and like the dust just sort of lingers there like he is a ghost <laughs> yeah.
1: and then um like well, i guess at this point we should preface it for our listener that if you have mm-hmm. not seen the ballad of buster scruggs and you want to which if you don't want to you should want to yeah then you probably shouldn't listen to this podcast because essentially it's six short films crammed into one and each one kind of has a surprising ending, in a way, and so we're going to talk about those endings, and we don't want to ruin the experience for you. And part of the experience of this movie, I think, is the element of surprise. So if you haven't yeah. seen it, you have been warned. If you want to keep listening, regardless, feel free. Mm-hmm. That is your, that's your
0: right as an American citizen. <laughs> Thanks, W. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's on Netflix, so it's really easy to watch.
1: Yes, that's something we're going to have to talk about. But yeah. Um, yeah, I was just going to point to the fact that at the end of Ballad of Buster Scruggs, he literally becomes like a spirit, a spirit angel that leaves, like Tim Tim Blake Nelson. The spirit leaves the body of Tim Blake Nelson and just yeah. flies away, strumming his guitar,
0: singing along with the guy that killed him. Yeah, a nice, <laughs> beautiful duet. <laughs> I at that point I realized I was in for a big time ride, like a. Yeah you know i I knew i was in for a coen brothers ride but that one was like okay that talk about pulling the rug out from under my feet i was not expecting that right (laughs) just dies
1: six minutes into the movie
0: yeah yeah the titular character Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i knew they were like vignettes or short films but i didn't realize that they aside from like themes and landscape they did not connect to one another
1: No, there's like some connections you can draw, but there's no common characters. Correct. um, No common situations. There's six independent stories. I heard that the Coen brothers had been working on these stories, or I should say five of them, because one of them is actually Jack London's story um, Uh, that they adapted, the, the one with Tom Waits.
0: Tom Waits. Yeah. Are you familiar with Tom Waits? I think I will once you describe exactly who he is he plays the uh the prospector
1: ah that's tom waits yeah tom waits kind of a legendary musician but he's also kind of an interesting little actor he was in um mystery men really who was he he was like their weapons guy or something (laughs) he wasn't the spoon man (laughs) he wasn't the spoon man i think that was uh azaria
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah or he was the the fork (laughs) the uh the blue Raja. Oh, man. And then Macy, another Coen Brothers fan. Um, (laughs) Right. He was the shoveler. We need to do that movie.
1: Yeah, yeah. Ben Stiller's Mr. Furious. Apparently, Ben Stiller hates that movie. I've heard that. (laughs) Yeah.
0: All the more reason to do it. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So, well, I guess that's a dumb thing to do. Start talking without anything to say. (laughs) I was going to say, do you think we should dive in or should we keep going over the actors because i feel like we still have a ton of actors
1: no i think that was the completion of my thought The tom cool. waits was in that jack london one and then the other five shorts the Cohen brothers wrote themselves apparently as yeah. short stories over the course of 20 to 25 years and yeah. just kind of had the vision to make it into this it's really hard to say what this movie is because i don't think there's any movie quite like it like it's mm-hmm. Partly parody, partly serious, partly satire, yeah. partly just straight up comedy, um, partly just kind of deconstruction of our cultural view of the West.
0: Yeah. And even the stories themselves, they like they kind of do and in some ways kind of don't follow like traditional narrative, you know? Mm-hmm. Because they're I don't know, maybe that's just the nature of them being like these like short films, essentially. Vignettes. That, like, yeah. They're like vignettes. So they kind of like, and I think you could speak more about this than I could, but I've heard like a novel, you know, usually has like a, a full story arc, but a short story, the, the short stories are kind of interesting because they sometimes just like start in the middle of things. They don't really like. In inter- media res. In media Exactly. Yeah. And then, and then they can sort of end with more of an ellipses than your average long narrative.
1: That's true. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um and and same with a film, you know, like it's I think especially a film because like a novel structure can lend itself to You're a right. lot of experimentation and like you can kind of just like really fuck around with what a novel is or can be. And obviously you can do that with movies, but I Not think as one much. Of the, yeah, like s- certain directors will do it like Lynch and Anderson and Linklater and Shyamalan <laughs> Shyamalan, <laughs> Shyamalan's always throwing some twist your way. <laughs> um, but I, I think, like one of the main reasons from, like what I could gather, that the Coen Brothers, like went straight to Netflix with with this one, is because they're so sick of the big studios, like only throwing money into like fucking Marvel and shit like that, uh. like action movies and superhero movies, mm. and. The, I think, basically, they're just fed up with the fact that for, like, artistic and thought-provoking films, there's little money, little distribution because, I mean, it's not just the studios. It's also the fact that people aren't seeing those movies. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. But, you know, it's also, like, the marketing behind the Marvel movies drastically outweighs anything for these movies. So, it makes people see the movies. So. <laughs> It just kind of was this, this loop that it seems like they were kind of fed up with. So they went straight to Netflix. So that was kind of a roundabout way of saying that the whole big studio Marvel production follows like a really distinct formula. Mm-hmm. You know, like the hero's journey, the 12-step archetypal process of this entire completed story arc that thanks to Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung we realize exists in our unconscious mind as essentially an expectation of story yeah. even though we don't know it's an expectation necessarily unless you read the hero with a thousand faces <laughs> and, <laughs> and so you know a short story and especially like these vignettes in this they don't follow that entire story arc they can kind of be little snippets and like you said start at various points in that or even just i mean i at this point, I doubt the Cohen brothers are really thinking about like the hero's journey when they're mm-hmm. writing stories. They're, a lot of these stories, I think, just come from a character, and they just like have this character in mind, and then they like create the story from that. Like I yeah. think maybe the only one that could be argued to follow that hero's journey, like maybe through and through is the longest one, which was the fifth one
0: um, which
1: um you try title to think of the, the name. Yeah, I've got the titles. Yeah, written that was like down.
0: The, the girl who the gal who got rattled. The gal who got rattled. Yeah. yeah. Which I think is like 30 to 40 minutes. Yeah, that one was that was long. It was interesting how they varied in length dramatically.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe one thing that we could do for our listeners is usually when we do a movie, we'll do like a one sentence description of what the movie is. We could do good a call. one sentence description of all six of these. Oh, I love it. So start with Scruggs.
0: Yeah, I think if I had to do one for Scruggs, maybe it would be a... Actually, I know that the <laughs> I read like the log line for that one. It uses the term good natured. So I'm stealing that. Okay. A polished and good natured gunslinger meets his match ah that's good that's giving away the ending partially but whatever sure yeah i was
1: gonna i was gonna add something along the lines of like a good-natured gunslinging minstrel mm. encounters cowpokes of various
0: towns <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely i love that you're right he's he's a minstrel he's like a traveling singer
1: yeah, the first scene of the movie, we just hear this song, and there's kind of a vast landscape, and it's kind of a distant song. You can tell a horse is riding through it. <laughs> you just get this quick cut to like Tim Blake Nelson's face as he's just kind of operatically and joyfully singing this song about cool water. Yeah. <laughs> and his horse, Dan. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Who, like, Dan responds as if he's a character a few times. Yeah,
1: even nods. <laughs> yeah.
0: S- Scruggs talks directly to the audience. Yes, he does. He's sort of this narrator, like, and sometimes even just narrating what he's doing. Speak- <laughs> very eloquent, too. Like, he uses some, fa- some fanciful language. Yeah. And not only like eloquent and fanciful, but like sometimes like downright not common parlance, like, hard to almost like, it's like, it's very sophisticated parlance fairy cone brothers word there yes it is use the I parlance thought about of that. our times yeah <laughs> it came into mind as i was saying <laughs> as i was saying it i know that um maud lebowski
1: says that you know to use the parlance yeah. of our times uh-huh. and then i'm pretty sure like after she says it a couple times the dude says it later like when he's trying to explain something he's like you know man the parlance of our times
0: yeah yes <laughs> he does and listener uh right now the big is on netflix so i that got me very excited because that's one of my favorite movies and um he does do that on multiple occasions the dude will repeat something that someone else has said yeah
1: this won't stand man this aggression yeah it's <laughs> <This> aggression <laughs> yeah so um so scruggs kills some people this is kind of like more it feels more classic coen brothers in a way to me yeah like, it does just kind of farcical and like there's murder but it's darkly comic like it, maybe not even that Darkly comic it's just funny it's like pretty slapstick yeah like when Buster Scruggs cl- kills Clancy Brown Clancy
0: Brown that's his name <laughs>
1: yeah. Clancy Brown who listener you probably know from two different contexts one of them would be as the voice of Mr. Krabs on SpongeBob SquarePants the other would be as the really mean guy in Shawshank Redemption
0: yes indeed. <laughs> it's good yeah. to see him playing another mean guy yes it was very good to see that That was, um, so you texted me that like, basically there were moments at, toward the beginning that you thought I would just like really sort of like lose it or just fully get, like understand what I was in for. And did, was there one in particular? Like, cause there were a few for me where I was just like, Whoa, (laughs) um, like for me,
1: like a moment I just really wanted to share with someone I when I watched this movie was mm. the instant that it like zooms in. It, it doesn't zoom in. It just cuts to Tim Blake Nelson ah. on a horse with a guitar singing with this like goofy smile on his face. <laughs> like right when that happened, I just busted out laughing. And I've watched that like at least 15 times. Just yeah. rewinding. Just like the way he's singing. And <laughs> I just feel like it's something that like most people would just kind of watch. And like not laugh at, but there's there's this almost ineffable quality to the Coen Brothers' humor. It, it's almost like um that it becomes you become more acquainted with it the more you watch Coen Brothers movies, and yeah. um it's very dry, and yeah. that's just like really encapsulated something that I found unbelievably hysterical. Yeah, so. I can't quite explain more, but it seems like maybe Clancy Brown was a click moment for you. Well, that was that was definitely a click one. Um,
0: but so like kind of
1: qu- quick set the scene. Like, Buster yeah.
0: Scruggs goes into an old saloon to play some poker, goes into a saloon to play some poker. There's a, a bit of us a, like a verbal exchange. And Clancy Brown shows that he has guns, even though technically you were supposed to turn them in at the front of the saloon the rules of this establishment. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Clancy Brown points his gun at Buster and then Buster having turned in his guns, including his, uh, he calls his Derringers something. Okay. I forget what they're called, but he has two Derringers in his boots. Really kind of funny shot. So in order to beat Clancy, Buster stomps really hard on the table, which knocks one of the like pieces of wood from the table up <laughs> causing Clancy Brown to shoot his own head <laughs> three, three times, times. <laughs> and then
1: the entire scene erupts into this like joyous celebratory song that Buster Scruggs sings yeah about sloppy joe or something <laughs> I something forget. joe something joe yeah and clancy brown is just dead on the floor as everyone's just like dancing and busters up
0: dancing on the bar yeah and to go back to this idea of this this bizarre specific way the coen brothers create humor with their imagery uh like clancy brown's brother like sees him on the ground and he starts like holding his head and he's like whatever that character's name was he starts like yelling his name and like joey was it (laughs) it's like joey joey it's like wiping the blood of his head and like the more he wipes the blood off, the more you can see where like the bullet holes are or whatever. And Clancy Brown's face in that scene is very funny. Like he's just his his eyes are just like open and dead. And there's just like an, a huge, insane amount of blood on his face. <laughs> and it's like it's on the one hand, it's horrifying. On the other hand, it's I don't know why. It's funny. Yeah yeah for
1: sure then that's pretty much it for scruggs yeah he kills clancy brown's brother in a in a duel in the streets and then mm-hmm. he gets killed because yeah. he's overconfident
0: yeah it's a little cocky it, it is pretty cocky and when he kills clancy brown's brother there's that had another shocking moment of violence which made me laugh in that buster scruggs shoots off all five of hit, hit the guy's fingers <laughs> really Just one by one one by one
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so we have the protagonist die at the end which i think kind of sets up maybe one of the main things of this movie which is contemplation of death
0: yeah that was a uh, that became a theme i, I don't remember when I, I think i realized that after like the second one that that was going to be a, a constant but this one yeah. certainly set that because i don't know for me it was like i was. maybe mistakenly i was like trying to read into all of like the imagery and like symbolism of everything and i was like oh buster scruggs represents like the ideals of the west and then it's like boom he's dead and i was Mm -hmm. like and then i feel like the movie the all the vignettes after that took a much more serious turn yeah i I guess they did um yeah that's definitely the most like inherently
1: comical one Uh uh-huh the next one had some comedic elements (laughs) (laughs) yeah it did it's called uh second one's called near algodons or
0: Mm algodones not sure how you say it and that one stars franco it does and listener something you should well you've seen the movie never mind um but i like i was always very curious when they returned to the book and they like turned the page and you got to see the, the single image from like the painting And that one just showed a man with pots all over his body, like running like a madman. So I was like super excited to see that actually happen.
1: Yeah, they present the whole movie like a storybook. Like in between each film, they cut to the same book and there's a hand that turns the pages and it shows the title. And Mm -hmm. one of the benefits of it being on Netflix is you can pause it and actually read like the first paragraph or two of the stories and it's really good prose it's like
0: damn these guys should write a novel yeah this is really really good stuff i'm such an idiot i didn't even think about doing that i was like trying to read as fast as i could and then i'd be like damn it (laughs) man i missed it
1: (laughs) (laughs) so yeah pot pot running man yeah you know that actor's name oh steven root Stephen Root. Yeah. yeah. Who listener, you might know
0: from Office Space as Milton <laughs> the stapler guy. Uh-huh. You might also know him from uh uh King of the Hill. Yes. I forget the friend's What's, name, but Is it it's not Bill. Is it I don't remember. He's order the Hank, one that, Yeah. He's like Hank Hill's good buddy. Uh-huh. Also, he played the accountant or some executive in No Country for Old Men. Really? Yeah. Jigger uh-huh. uh shoots him.
1: Ah, yeah. he shoots
0: him. He Shoot. doesn't use the, the cow cattle. No, the cattle no, killed. he uses his silenced shotgun. Ah. And he shoots him and, uh, yeah, kills him. That's, it's, doesn't he use that silenced shotgun on uh, Harrelson? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't know why that made me laugh so hard. Yes, he did. Her, I almost Harrelson. said Harrelson was in another Coen Brothers movie, but I was actually thinking of kingpin oh yeah is the protagonist of another bowling film wow you're right yeah which is actually pre-lebowski
0: <laughs> yeah interesting that had quaid did it oh yeah randy randy R- yeah <laughs> that's a good movie oh man you know who i think did that i think the zucker brothers did that it was the uh farley brothers oh but it wasn't the was, Cohen brothers
1: it wasn't the coen brothers <laughs> the big three in terms of brothers yeah <laughs> that's not not counting the uh duplass brothers
0: oh i'm not familiar with them
1: yeah they do more like obscure
0: stuff um i see versus the russo brothers the russo brothers yeah they, they do, do the, they do marvel avengers avengers yeah they're, they're little disney boys <laughs> However, they also did the pilot to Arrested Development. Ah, back when they had souls. <laughs> Those were the days. That, that was the that's correct like, response.
1: That's like reflecting when Favreau was in the movie The Replacements with Keanu Reeves mm-hmm. playing Danny Bateman before Favreau was directing yet another Disney reboot yeah. of The Lion King <laughs> after wow. having done The Jungle Book, after having done at least two Iron Mans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hmm. Disney Boy Favreau, D- Disney Boy—that's
0: his, that's his first name.
1: <laughs> I would love to. We should get the Cohen Brothers on this podcast, and just You're right. Ask ask them about Disney.
0: Like, what do you think of Disney these days? That's a good point. We should just get them on here. Yeah. <laughs> but I would love. I would love to hear their their thoughts on Disney. Yeah, I could see them saying. I could see them having a response along the lines of. We don't care,
1: <laughs> right? Like we would structure a whole interview around like diving into their perspective <laughs> on Disney and big studios, and their response would just be like, "We literally we do not care at all." And then we'd be like, yeah. "Oh, oh, oh yeah. big, big Lebowski, it's a funny movie." <laughs> do you still talk to yeah. Jeff Bridges?
0: And then they would like lean in close and and say to us, "We don't care." Yeah, for everything we every question we asked them, they would just lean in closer. And, and just tell us that we don't <laughs> so care.
1: Their faces were coming through the screens like <laughs> that girl from the ring. <laughs> and then we'd have nightmares forever and probably never do this podcast again. Yeah, no. so it'd be a really bad idea to get the Cohen
0: brothers <laughs> in this podcast. Yeah, in fact Cohen <laughs> brothers, if you're listening to this, please don't come on our podcast.
1: <laughs> we want to keep this going. <laughs> we don't have any intelligent questions to ask you. Yeah. So maybe if we asked them about Heidegger. Mm. they'd start going. I feel like we could get them, get them into some philosophy. Yeah, I think they both studied philosophy, so... Ooh. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, you know, i actually thought of Heidegger with this movie. <gasps> mm. Do you know why? I don't at all. Um, so, listener, if you're not familiar, Martin Heidegger was a German philosopher <laughs> and a Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he was. <laughs> he was also probably the the most, if not... Well, maybe the most, maybe the second most, depends on who you ask, influential philosopher of the 20th century. Other people would say uh, old Wittgenstein. Oh, yeah, of course. Numero uno. But um, anyways, Heidegger um, wrote a lot of dense stuff that I will never understand. But one thing that I did learn about him is he talked quite a bit about death and Mm. about authenticity and how we are being toward death yeah and that a lot of um are that we're kind of kind of fleeing that reality in a sense, and we animate our lives with with Babel with Dasman <laughs> all this <laughs> kind of meaningless <laughs> conversation that points us away from the the facticity of our death, and so I saw these characters as like being toward death and really kind of the movie in general as. This broad contemplation of mortality wow. and death and to the point where um, the last one, I know we're kind of going out of order here, but who gives a fuck? No one's listening except our one listener, of <laughs> and course, the Coen brothers. and the Cohen brothers who are still considering whether or not to join <laughs> us. The last one is, I would say, the most surreal mm-hmm. of all six of them, and it involves five people in a carriage. Two people on one side, one of whom is Gleason, mm-hmm. and three people on the other side, kind of facing each other. So, like, I don't know if it ever shows them all in the same frame. It'll like cut between like this pair on one side right. and this group of three on another, and they're riding a, a carriage to Fort Morgan for um, unspecified reasons. And I think this might be this might be the most the one that amazed me the most because when I watched it a second time. I watched the lighting and the color. Yeah. You you noticed that? I did. It's yeah, amazing. It's, it's like super bright at the beginning, colorful and kind of like the other movies or mm-hmm. the other short films in it and very subtly and gradually it just kind of takes on this veneer of darkness and all of a sudden like out the windows there's no longer like sunlight and it's just dark and it's kind of starts to look like um harry potter six through eight uh, <laughs>
0: everything's just like really dark and colorless uh-huh. yeah for me it like by the end it was almost like embodying an edgar Allan poe poem or story yes it that's felt like good... very victorian raven-esque um yeah dark and mysterious yeah you kind of don't know what's happening like i know the you other don't. ones
1: you know what's happening pretty clearly in mm-hmm. every single one of them um Maybe the the one with Neeson takes a little bit to figure it out. Mm-hmm. What's going on? Why there's this um, dude with no arms speaking yeah. poems? Yeah, but uh, yeah, this this last one. I mean, wouldn't you
0: say they're like the
1: the coach driver in it is death? Oh. Did you, did you have that sense, or was that just me?
0: No, you, I mean you're totally right. I didn't I didn't like think about it enough. I I found it very very amazing. Like they spent. I mean, even the the name of. Am I right that like the name of that? What is the name of that story? I forget. Um, the I, the mortal remains. The, oh my god! Okay, so that makes sense because we we learn that Neeson and his buddy are bounty. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, that Gleason and his buddy are bounty hunters. Real quick, Gleason, uh, Harry Potter. He was Mad Eye Moody. Yeah, he was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so we learn that Gleason and his buddy are bounty hunters and that they're carrying one of their bounty to a certain sheriff to collect a reward. And so obviously there's, there's that notion of death. But as we mentioned with like the storybook thing, the image that they show at the top of each story usually tends to relate to, or at least I felt like they all related to like the main characters, but this one, the image which sorry by the way all the images that appear in that storybook are like an exact image that then appears in the actual like short story uh short film or whatever the vignette yeah um and this one is the coach driver and that scene when they show the coach driver whose face you cannot see who you can only see like he's like holding a whip and he has this like long flowing dark garment it's mm-hmm eerie and downright frightening and yeah. then they keep saying actually i think it's like gleason and his buddy they reiterate numerous times that he will not stop no matter what yeah this you're, coach driver does not stop you're so right
1: yeah he's just relentlessly whipping <laughs> oh it
0: felt so like yeah that one to me felt so again just that like that that edgar Allan poe like deep like mystery storybook of just like these these like yeah that one was like the most simple i feel like in many ways and yet it was like so <laughs> it might also be the most complex yeah exactly which, but
1: yeah. i know what you mean like it's i know that's a very cliche thing mm-hmm. to say like oh it's simple
0: and it's complex but it's like they're like, they're, like they're basically flower. yeah like they're they're in one location like it's it's all like yeah. it's stories like it's basically the people each kind of telling a story in the coach Yes. And like uh-huh. those, I, I I don't even know if I'd be able to like represent what each of those represents, but you have like the mountain man, the like the Christian woman, like the French kind of exist, like pre-existentialist kind of guy. And then yeah. you have like these bounty hunters. And, you know. And it's
1: interesting because like bounty hunters they they actually don't use that term no they like they say what they do for a living later on mm-hmm. like once the other characters ask and it's the trapper the trapper that asked them this, tra- this old trapper with like a coon skin hat yeah who <laughs> just won't shut up and he asked them kind of nervously like what they do for a living because it's indicated from the beginning that they're transporting a dead body that's mm-hmm. on top of the carriage and They say, uh, they being the not Gleason guy, who's like this British aristocratic Mm -hmm. guy with like a very tight mustache. (laughs) And he says that they are reapers and harvesters of souls. And it turns back to the trapper and he says like, you're bounty hunters. Mm -hmm. And the British guy goes, literal man. (laughs) He like doesn't like that term. He's like, okay, yes, we're bounty hunters, but like to him they are not that no reapers and harvesters of souls is a lot more along the lines of death bringing these people on this surreal carriage ride toward like toward a hotel it ends at this hotel at fort morgan yeah and the two bounty hunters gleason and his pal go in first carrying the dead body and the other three just kind of sit in the carriage for a while like looking terrified just like it's it's this sense that they know what's happening but they also don't want to admit what's happening Mm -hmm. like they all have this wide-eyed gaze almost like i i think it's my reading is these three are like dead and kind of being like shepherded into something past Uh, something next
0: yeah like
1: almost this transit state of their souls between like the mortal remains, like between the mm. mortal embodied to like the afterlife, which I feel is represented through this hotel. And they like very tentatively go into the hotel. And the last image is like the French guy and he's standing outside the doors looking in. And it's this very like Kubrick-esque shining yep. hotel, like kind of dim. It just, it doesn't look very inviting. Mm-mm. It's dark and frightening. And you can tell this guy's afraid. And the last image Is he kind of looks in and his gaze changes to like acceptance and he just puts his bowler hat on, walks through the door and closes it. And it's almost like it ends on this like acceptance of the moral
0: state. Yeah, that's a really, really good way to put it because something about that hotel, like just watching it that that one time to me, it really super duper, super duper. I don't know why I said that. It's super duper. It's super duper felt like that is clearly like that that door was like a threshold. Um, yes because i like wanted to kind of go in like we see the hotel but we don't really enter but I was, you, you like you know that there's like they focus on that door a lot you know after mm-hmm. gleason and his buddy go in there and you can and they're all hesitant to go in the door the three others right they're like hesitant in general through the scene like
1: um Like you said, they're each, like, telling their story, like, the story of their lives. And, like, sometimes those stories are conflicting and, like, they start arguing with each other. What it made me think of was... uh, Did you ever read Sartre's No Exit?
0: Uh, Maybe portions of, but I don't recall.
1: Sartre was the French existentialist philosopher. Mm -hmm. Um, And he wrote this play called No Exit. And it has these three people who are in a room and they seems like they kind of know why they're there, but they don't know why they're there. It's a strange room. And they're just kind of like talking about their lives uh-huh. and just like kind of going on and on. And like the more they talk about their interests and their focuses and their lives, the more they like conflict and don't work well together. Hmm. And then gradually, like it comes to light that they're in hell. Wow. And that <laughs> the story ends with the line like hell is other people. Um, so that's like <laughs> the ultimate conclusion.
0: I've heard that. that I have story. heard that quote. <laughs>
1: yeah yeah but like they're so insistent on their perspectives and like it seems like hell is also their own perceptions because like they can't see outside the borders like there's this one woman in the story who's really vain and she's always looking in the mirror Mm. but like i think at some point there's no mirror down there and she can't deal with that reality but like i kind of got that sense from these three characters like they're the woman in the middle is like so insistent on like the love that she had with her husband and the French guy is like, he doesn't love you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and she's like, she, she seems more
0: frantic as the scene goes on. She does. Like, Oh, (laughs) to the point that love is still there for decent people. Yeah. And like, almost like to the point that she, she essentially like has a, a a fast nervous breakdown. Yeah. She starts freaking out. Yeah. And that's when when the French guy. Yeah. Leans out to like, tell the driver to stop. And you see this just like the eeriest, one of the eeriest scene, like images I've ever seen in a movie that it's so good yeah it's, it really is amazing i mean <laughs> uh yeah and then the trapper he his view of humanity is like in utter like just the simple animalistic basically terms to the point that he just boldly proclaims that all humans are ferrets like he doesn't <laughs> like, literally mean three times that they're ferrets but like he's like you know trying to understand a, like a human and a human's actions is it's like, you might as well just consider like a ferret, you know, what a yeah. ferret does. Like, there's no, you know, because Gleason, even though he's a killer and we learned that he's a very good killer, he mm-hmm. asks like the most touching question of the scene, which is like, did you love her? Referring to the native woman that this trapper had a relationship with. And then he starts talking about like what you can learn from a face. And I think that's when he starts mentioning that people are ferrets or whatever.
1: Yes. Yes. That also makes me think of a, a Coen Brothers trope that kind of came to light when I was watching this movie. And that's mm-hmm. like repetition of the same line. Yeah. Like multiple times quickly in almost kind of awkward insertions. <laughs> like yeah. the way he says people are ferrets. And like in an earlier one, the one, uh, the gal who got rattled, there's like she, there's this girl who's on a wagon train mm-hmm. going to Oregon. And she's going there because her older brother says that he's got someone for her to marry. And then Mm -hmm. her older brother dies of cholera like right away. And she kind of like gets to know the two people leading this wagon train, this kind of young, suave, cool guy and Mm -hmm. this older, grizzled Western man. And she like talks about the price that they've that she has to pay for their like her own wagon lead. Yeah. And like the old guy. Just like, that's a high price. A high price. And then they'll continue the conversation and it just cuts to him. He's like, that's a high price. Yep. And I was thinking like in um, Fargo, there's that scene where Jerry Lundengard is like proposing his business plan. And that one guy <laughs> keeps saying, we're not a bank, Jerry.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're not uh, a bank, Jerry. <laughs> Stan. Stan Grossman. Stan Grossman. <laughs> Who they talk about with utter reverence throughout the entire movie. U.S. Stan, he'll say the same thing. <laughs>
1: That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. There was there was one more I thought of. Let's see if I could find it super quick. The repetition. Oh, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman in The Big Lebowski. I think multiple times when he's like, "This is our concern, dude." Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Such a strange, uniquely Coen Brothers
0: thing. <laughs> it is. They do a really good job of that. <laughs> I don't exactly know why. I know. It's it's characteristic. It is it's characteristic. Like... I don't know. Maybe it just like emphasizes a certain point of view or, or something that they realize is like an important thing. Yeah.
1: Anyways, that was a bit of a digression from the mortal remains and our contemplations of our death. No, it's all right. I think, um,
0: you know, now that you... Sorry. <clears throat> you put it in those terms, it it really helps contrast the first story, which is Buster Scruggs, and that last one, Mortal Remains, because one has like this strangely idealistic heavenly view of death, where it's Buster literally playing a harp (laughs) (laughs) with wings wings and flying into heaven. And it's almost (laughs) as if nothing has happened. It's almost like he's not dead. And he's singing this song about how like, I think there's even a lyric in the song that like, alludes to the fact that he and the cowboy who killed him will kind of one day meet again and, and everything will be fine. Yeah. So it's like, that's sort of, go ahead. That's that's a really good point.
1: When you said it's almost like he's not dead because I think that that might be the the theme of that specific one, the ballad of Buster Scruggs Mm -hmm. is that like stories and archetypes and patterns live on. Mm. And like, you know, he was the outlaw. Now the guy that kills him is like the new outlaw. Yeah. And, it like Another thing is when the story ends, it'll cut to the last page of the storybook. Mm-hmm. So once again, you can pause it yep. and read the end of it. And the end of the Buster Scruggs one has some awesome line, like something along the lines of what you said, like they'll meet again and like, yeah. and, you know, he will fi- meet his match and that story will go on in a new form. Yeah, that's what that, you're right. That seems to be a very Coen Brothers idea, just like the recurrence of stories mm-hmm. And their significance, like, and I think especially from Noah, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou Onward, like the the relevance of song to keeping stories alive, and yeah. the way that songs, like, kind of preserve a cultural time and, like, tell the story itself, like, inside Lewin Davis mm-hmm. and then this movie, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs.
0: Yeah, I. It's probably an oversimplification, but I think it's worth noting their cultural upbringing as being Jewish and how so much of Jewish mm. stories and tradition have been passed down for like 3,000 years by way of songs. That's and, a good point. Yeah. And stories that are bold enough to address but not answer questions of human suffering. And I feel like, you know, <clears throat> like I said, it's simplifying them to to just point to that. But I think it it also has to be you know, it, it has to be relevant in some way. And I think you can oh, yeah. see that a lot in a serious man, which is for them kind of their closest thing to autobiography because it it's, yeah. it's like they're lo- like, you know, they, we, ha- we see a slice of the life that they knew as kids. So uh, how do you see this? Like so clearly in a serious man? Um, Oh, just in the sense of, um, just in the fact that that one is about a suburban Jewish family growing up in the sixties. And, um, so in that way it's you know like that's the life that they knew and and even kind of the climax of that movie is the Danny the you know the young kid literally singing a song that tells a story um and then you know he's constantly listening to the the Torah on that on that record uh-huh so anyway I think it's just I think it's just worth noting that their cultural background I, I feel like is is significant to the way they tell stories and the themes they choose to address.
1: Yeah. And just the very fact that stories communicate meaning mm-hmm. in themselves and that that meaning isn't necessarily reducible to like a platitude yeah. or a sentence like, yeah, you can extract meaning from it, but it's like the experience of the story itself that maybe holds difficult lessons to hear. And that makes me think of that scene in a serious man where, if you haven't seen A Serious Man, listener, we would very, very highly recommend watching A Serious For Man. For sure. <laughs> this the 2009, I think. Mm-hmm, I think so. Coen Brothers film. And it's, it's about this Jewish physicist named Larry Gopnik, mm-hmm. who basically his entire world crumbles around him one piece at a time, which is a very Coen Brothers thing. But instead of like huge murderous plots, this is more kind of like you know, his family and his job and just everything that he thought was certain and like uh, predictable in his reality. And so he goes to rabbis for like, (laughs) like solace and help and advice. And the second rabbi that he sees is this like respected rabbi in the community. And this rabbi tells a very long, intricate story, like so intricate to the point that the Cohen brothers actually film <laughs> the story as the rabbi is narrating it yeah and it's about this it's called the goy's teeth and it's about this um this Jewish dentist and a non jewish guy comes in <laughs> and as the dentist is like like working on his teeth he sees that there's Hebrew letters engraved <laughs> into the back of his lower teeth, and the guy becomes absolutely obsessed on figuring out like what these letters mean Uh and basically the story just kind of goes and goes and you expect there's going to be like some kind of resolution (laughs) when it is all clear and like it literally just reaches a point where the rabbi like stops telling the story and he just kind of shakes his head yeah (laughs) and larry's sitting there like well what what does it mean what does it mean he's like i don't know who cares
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's it is truly amazing and you know it's significant because uh in another way because a lot of people point to the book of Job uh, from the Hebrew scriptures as being the influence for a serious man. And you can see definite parallels. And the interesting thing about the book of Job is that the ending that exists now on the book of Job, maybe like the last chapter, or maybe it's only like a paragraph. I think it's like a paragraph, um, was written later. So the earliest editions of Job that exist don't have this last paragraph. Really? Yeah. And in that last paragraph, it basically brings everything to a tight conclusion, and it says something along the lines of, "God was so amazed with Joe's faith, Job's faith, that you know he restored his health, he restored his wealth, um, he had more kids, and he lived to a thousand or whatever." But the original ending just ended with Job sitting in the desert, like yelling at God, with boils on his body and like just totally dirty. <laughs>
1: That's that's way more Cohen brothers. It's way more
0: Cohen brothers to have that. And I think that's like more probably true to like ancient spiritual traditions that most stories ha- like the ending is one of mystery and in many ways like dissatisfaction.
1: Yeah, and possibly extreme suffering and <laughs> agonizing death. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> like
1: it was probably pretty common to find yourself with horrific boils all over your body those days and i'm sure it felt just as bad then as it does now and probably even worse because they didn't have advil (laughs) (laughs) they just had to kind of sit with it yeah and like if you're a very faithful person and you know you've got all this faith in god and you know those ancient stories of god's providence or whatnot like that could lead to a crisis of faith. Like I've been very, very spiritual and devout in my faith. Yeah. And now I have boils all over my body mm-hmm.
0: and I am dying. Yeah.
1: This fucking sucks.
0: <laughs> I I love that. You were saying something earlier, Sean, about meaning and the stories. And I feel like, uh, a like maybe a, a more complex and maybe more difficult, but I think in many ways, better way to view stories as like, is that they, the meaning doesn't just come from like a good ending that explains what you're supposed to learn. Like meaning, meaning with stories is almost more of an experience where the stories themselves convey some sense of meaning. And yes, I I think that's always more mysterious and just like it's less clear. Yeah.
1: And I think that one really fun thing about the Ballad of Buster Scruggs is it, it taps into kind of, the origins of storytelling in a way because it's called the ballad of buster scruggs and a ballad is a song that tells a story yeah and they're considered among the earliest stories and they would be passed you know amongst travelers mm-hmm. who'd like sing the songs and teach the songs that would tell these stories and other like early story forms are fables um and fables are kind of characteristic of like putting a very clear meaning at the end like This is the story, this is the moral lesson, Mm -hmm. and this is what you take from it. Like they're often very childlike, you know, like a lot of animal characters, like the tortoise and the hare would be a classic fable. Mm -hmm. Um, But then, you know, there's things like parables. And parables are often, I think, confused with fables, but parables don't say what they're about. Like they're the story themselves and you Mm -hmm. extrapolate meaning. And that's why if you were raised Catholic, like Matt and I, you've probably heard the parable of the prodigal son at least 7,000 times yeah.
0: <laughs> because
1: like it's supposed to kind of evolve in meaning through time. And I know my dad has told me that like, you know, it meant something to him when he was a kid. Yeah. And now that he's a father, it means something completely
0: different. Oh, wow. Exa- yeah. That's a great way to put it.
1: Yeah. So I think like the Cohen brothers and I would, you know, if you look at the old Testament, I don't think you're going to be seeing fables. You're going to be seeing a lot Not even parables, like just stories that don't necessarily have a clear meaning. Like, you you know, that's where where you get kind of the psychos who
0: point to like a passage from the Old Testament. They're
1: like, that's what it means. Like, people can't be gay. I love
0: love that you just refer to these people as the psychos. And I I think they deserve that, to be honest. I know that's kind of mean of me to say, but... (laughs) they deserve that word because they are psychotic to uh, anyway it was a psychotic perspective yeah exactly (laughs) to take like any one to
1: really any even fucking book of the old testament and like project an absolute interpretation on reality and like be mean to people
0: because of it (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's like i can only imagine the people who like actually authored that are like just like pissed off it's like damn it we wrote this to help people like kind of understand the world around them and their experience and now you're turning it into some codified dogma (laughs)
1: Right. we tried to make you think (laughs) open-mindedly like experience new dimensions of reality not just like find a confirmation bias in some ancient
0: text (laughs) yeah exactly it's like yeah like for genesis i've heard multiple times that like it's it's pretty pretty clear that that ancient israelites did not actually believe that the world was created in seven days but they were like well that kind of that kind of explains what what probably you know the god's power it's like okay Mm -hmm. so let's write that (laughs) like they didn't actually think that (laughs) well that gets to the difference
1: between religious truth and historical truth Mm -hmm. which i'd imagine that's kind of a distinction that you've come across yeah
0: yeah definitely that's a that's a good point like uh you know yeah just I mean I don't know if I could speak a lot about it but you know this whole idea of like certain certain stories even let's just say whether just like quote like like secular mythologies even though I don't know if you can say that but like any kind of mythology versus history it's like one's trying to say something different you know mythology of any kind is trying to teach a like a, a deeper truth about maybe human experience I'm glad you brought up mythology because mm-hmm. that
1: was the piece I was missing when I was talking about fables and parables ah. is mythology. Cause I think that's like the old Testament is filled with mythology, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so myth- mythology is even like bigger than a parable. A parable might get at like a moral, um, yeah, truth. Whereas mythology is trying to get at like a universal mm-hmm. truth or
0: yeah. Something like really, really broad sweeping, you know, and I wonder like for the, for the old Testament, for example, You know, I think the authors of of the various books and stories, they because they didn't fully understand the world around them, they they what they chose to do is use their universal explanation they had for everything, which was God. And they wanted to show how powerful God was. So, you know, oh, and then God killed 10,000, you know, of these people, 10,000 Assyrians or whatever the story may have been like that didn't actually happen. (laughs) yeah Yeah. it's not a historical truth (laughs) but a religious truth in the
1: sense that like in the story there is an element of of truth of like an abstract nature that doesn't have to be attached to like this western idea of a linear physical progression of history yeah exactly one event leading into the other but rather um this deep existential meaning like a moral meaning perhaps Mm -hmm that we can extrapolate from the experience of the story itself exactly and then i think like the last type of story that the coen brothers are really putting into play and the Ballad of buster scruggs and i think also very much so in the big lebowski Uh is um you know a lot of people rip on america (laughs) by saying like we have no cultural history (laughs) and like you know it's just this kind of (laughs) Like vapid nothingness uh-huh. of like meh, war and racism and repression, and mm-hmm. all that, which is, you know, probably true. <laughs> but like, but there's an element unique to our history, which is the tall tale. And. Ah. You got to love a tall tale. Like I, I fucking loved learning about tall tales when I was a kid. And I still love learning about tall tales oh, like so Paul right. Bunyan and John Henry. Yeah, These tales came from the American frontier. Like they didn't come from Europe. They came from, I mean, like maybe they're coated with like destructive messages of like <laughs> worship of industry. Although I think John Henry's story is actually quite the opposite yeah. of that kind of man over machine. Yes, right? it is.
0: And like yeah. uh, like hard work and perseverance would be like some lessons from that one as well.
1: Yeah. So they've got like the parable quality, but like they're also very character driven. Yeah. You know? oh, like, you're these so larger right. than
0: life characters. You're right. A parable a parable won't necessarily even have a character, let alone like a strong character, but
1: Yeah, it's just like a type.
0: Yeah, exactly. A father. Oh, a rich man. Yeah, a father. Yeah, yeah a rich man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the tall tale, like, I, yeah, I totally, I think of Paul Bunyan, I think of the guy who rode the tornadoes. Pecos uh, Bill. Pecos Bill, yeah. Yeah. hmm Wow.
1: Paul Bunyan, Pecos Bill, and John Henry, I think were like the big 3 mm-hmm. And I feel like that's kind of what they're trying to do with the dude, you know, kind of turn this tall tale, like, western frontier, almost larger than life, like the way the wow. stranger is telling the story, like, way out west, like, there is a man. And, That's you know, it. it's it's he's kind of become something of a tall tale, like his reference point, like the dude. Oh, man. Wow. People wearing T-shirts of him. I just got and goosebumps. So I think the, <laughs> yeah. I think the Coen brothers are really tapped into that. And especially with the title story, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, like Buster Scruggs is very much like a tall tale character. Like when mm. he arrives in saloons, people have heard of him and he's like known and he's larger than life in like his mm.
0: eloquence and delivery of his speech and his, you know abilities with a gun. Wow. Another, that's a so amazing. I'm so glad you brought this up because right after the Buster Scruggs vignette, my mind, I don't know why, but it briefly went to the story of Casey at the bat. Do you remember that story? that story? It's a kind of a, along those lines of like an American tall tale about a great baseball player who's arrogant. And, uh, he, kind of like a Babe Ruth type, maybe, you know, in the sense that like, I don't think he calls his shot, but Casey, he's, he's going to hit a home run to win the game. And, but he wants to wait for the right pitch, like the perfect pitch or something like that. Or he wants to show people how good he is. So he intentionally lets two perfect strikes go by. And he like is like telling everyone to wait because on the next one, he'll hit a home run and he strikes out. And Mm. it's sort of like an American Icarus. He like his arrogance. Uh. Yeah. And, and Buster Scruggs very much reminded me of that. It's like, oh, this man—he's so good with the gun that he forgot that he maybe isn't the best. Yes, mm-hmm. that's
1: right. And what you just said made me think of the Sandlot. Ah, uh huh.
0: Babe Ruth, Babe Ruth, <laughs> <laughs> who is a the mi- tall tale of Babe Ruth the- and Benny the Jet Rodriguez. <laughs> oh man, I'm I'm digging this American tall tale now. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and it's so significant. You're right, because I feel like I remember as a kid having a a storybook of tall tales. And this movie Mm -hmm. is a storybook. Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. Like,
1: no, go ahead. No, you can go ahead. I was just going to say, like, the Coen brothers, it seems like movie after movie, they are very, very, like, like, it's... It's meta in a sense of like they're very much revealing the fact that these are stories. Yeah. Like it's not trying to disguise the fact that it's a story. <laughs> like it's framed as a story that's being told to you. Like with The Stranger in The Big Lebowski uh-huh. it starts off by narrating the story and like you know, telling what's about to happen. And then obviously through Serious Man in the ways that we've talked about and then now through Buster Scruggs where they're literally turning the pages of a book. hmm so I think that's part of why I love them so much is just I agree. they seem to have such a like respect and almost like awe of the enduring quality of stories mm-hmm. and like the multitudinous forms that story can take from song to vignette to film to short story to you know it's it's endless and limitless and i think that's why maybe they do actually hate disney because they see <laughs> like yeah. their favorite medium presumably their, or at least their favorite creative medium film becoming completely dominated by a
0: landscape of sameness you're right and stories are stories a lot of them touch on the same themes or even will have recurring characters or archetypes but they're not like the the point of a story is not necessarily to like fill the points of an outline like this, then this, then this. You know, right. like obviously, like Joseph Campbell and whatnot. Like the good stories and mythologies follow like a character along a similar path, but but there are also those stories that are just mysterious. Hmm. I once heard
1: someone say that the ending of a story should be surprising yet inevitable. Ah, uh, I thought I like that. That was a really, really good way of putting it. I think, and I feel like that could be applied
0: to a lot of the sh- the shorts in this. Um, in this film. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, that's so true because as I've, I've only seen it once, but as I've like been thinking about the clues that are given in the story, I think to myself, I should have seen that ending coming. I can't believe I didn't. Is is there one in particular that, yeah, the one in particular is, uh, there's a certain in the, the gal who got rattled. Uh, uh-huh. there's, I was rethinking that one because that was one of the most emotional things I've seen in a very long time. Uh, that one's brutal. That one is brutal. It's and it's utterly gorgeous. Um, Yes, it was amazing. But there's a there's a point that occurs in the story where, looking back on it, I should have known at that point how it was going to end.
1: Was it when the the old guy told her what to do with
0: with the pistol? Yep. At that point, I should have known how it was going to end, but I didn't. Yep. Same. I was like, "Fuck!" But like the moment he got up after like playing dead for a moment. And he like calls her name like Miss Longovo. I was like, (gasps) I think I see the dog barking. Yeah. I think I gasped and like put hands to my cheeks. I was like, oh, no. Yeah. Uh, It was like for me, it reminded me of like if you've read any of the stories of Flannery O'Connor, who I know, I'm pretty sure they're fans of Flannery O'Connor, and she would fall in a similar aesthetic line as Cormac McCarthy. Um, Yes. They her stories do this deeply human, often horrific twist. And that for me, was one I was it. I had to pause it after that and just sit a, sort of sit there for a minute. Yeah. It made me I was so incredibly sad. Yes, me too. Oh, that was that was the most immer-
1: emotionally turbulent one.
0: I yeah, thought. I agree. Like it was just absolutely brutal because it was the one that I was holding out for a deep Hollywood esque glimmer of hope. Like, come on, sunset, happily ever after. Like this might be uh-huh. the one.
1: Yeah. It like had that. Oh, that's that's an amazing thing about the Coen Brothers is that we're watching this movie where there's already been three stories where, like, either the protagonist or the next to protagonist dies at the end, and I should know it's well, going to happen. Yeah, we should know it's going to happen. Like, this isn't going to end well, and yet still, the Coen Brothers must be deeply aware of the fact that our expectation, possibly because of like Disney movies and Hollywood, is that things are gonna work out in this beautiful way and we're gonna feel good yeah but the
0: inevitable conclusion of this story is that it's it's death it's brutal it is and and as i thought about it more i came to the realization that her death was you can't pin a like a complicated thing so easily but her death was the fault of of the 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 young cowboy who who she was gonna marry because he didn't was that How's that? He didn't kill the dog. And the dog showed uh, up and barked, and she then got off the trail. Uh-huh. So, I mean, you can't point... And, it attracted, and the, it attracted the Indians. Exactly. So, like, you can't necessarily just point to that, but I left... I finished watching that one thinking that he was going to blame himself for that because... Yes. His, he wanted to be nice to her, and so he didn't kill the dog. Instead, he just scared it away with the three shots, but... Had he killed the dog, she would have never walked off the track and they would not have been attacked. Wow. Yeah. That is so true. So it's like now we just, oh. Which is amazing
1: then because after she dies, we don't even see that young cowboy again, like, except maybe at a distance when the old guy is like up on the ridge. But because of what you just said, we know his emotional condition Mm -hmm. at the end. Like, we know. Basically, something that's going to be with him for the rest of his life. Yeah. Like, even though we don't see it, and the Cohen Brothers know that they don't need to like show that. But, I mean, that's a that's that's probably that probably the the short that had like the most developed mm-hmm. characters. Like, you know, you care for the characters. Yeah, for sure. The most. I agree. And I kind of felt sympathetic for the the no limbed yeah
0: guy because the, how horrible recent story. Yeah. It's like I, I, you. There's a certain point where you realize what's going to happen, and then you see Liam Neeson just try it out with the big rock. Uh-huh. It's like, are you kidding me? What you're about to do? And yeah, and like you said, gr- it's a great point. They don't show it. They don't need to show it. Nope. Let the- It's way more powerful when you don't exactly. show it. When you
1: imply it, and then you allow the viewer, or reader, or whatever medium it mm-hmm. is, to create that in their own imagination and like feel
0: the weight of the emotion through their own like processing of what's happening exactly i mean it reminds me a lot of how like chris nolan knew he didn't have to show the totem fall (laughs)
1: that's exactly what i was thinking
0: (laughs) he knew that the audience would would know it's more powerful yeah that's chris nolan is a guy that understands story structure
1: and character development. I mean rarely find a character as developed as Dom
0: Cobb. Yeah, or uh or uh Ellen Page's character when there's a I, I rewatched the scene recently when he's explaining Inception to her and she has fifteen lines, ten of which are questions. That's horrible. If you have to have your characters asking so many questions, it means you don't even get your story.
1: Yes, yeah, you're just like making up bullshit as you go and you're yeah. thinking of every question that someone might ask. Exactly. And then providing a bullshit response to that question yeah. it's and like, then <laughs> making a James Bond movie. <laughs> yeah. Did he make is he next to Bond? No, I was just saying the rest of Inception is basically oh. like a James Bond plot. Just <laughs> like trying to make itself seem
0: cool. Oh my god, you're so right.
1: <laughs> it's just like heist and yeah,
0: I don't know secrets and briefcases and yeah, lounges and it reminds ski me of the, uh, silo. Uh, I think it was a silo. Um, Goldeneye, Goldeneye, yeah, yep. It's like mm-hmm. every, every time that part of Inception comes on, I'm like, I feel like I'm playing Goldeneye again. <laughs> I feel like I'm playing Goldeneye, but it's not fun anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think like kind of a last. Point I want to I want to make while we were talking about that uh the Neeson story, mm-hmm. I, I think this that might be the Cohen brothers' most in in my view most direct statement to like the way uh, almost kind of the Disney the Disneyfication of stories because mm-hmm. I kind of thought of this more the second time I watched it. Basically, listener, if you still need a setup, Liam Neeson is this guy who travels around with a his wagon and he's with this. This individual who has no limbs and he essentially puts this individual on display like as a circus act and this this guy this no-limbed guy like gives these performances of of speeches and dramatic retellings of stories like shakespeare i think and um the emancipation proclamation right uh oh uh gettysburg address gettysburg Mm -hmm. address that's Mm -hmm. right my bad that's right and um And the the poem Ozymandias Mm -hmm. by P.B. Shelley. And there's like a big crowd at first. And then like later in the story, there's a smaller crowd. And by the end, there's no one. And so like they're not getting any money basically from this performance. But Neeson, who's kind of in charge of this guy and using this guy, um, he finds that there's this huge crowd gathered in (laughs) in this town and like tons of people just like excited about what they're watching. And he goes to see what it is. And they're all watching this chicken that can do math
0: (laughs) that was so funny
1: (laughs) like people from the crowd will shout out like you know 18 minus (laughs) 7 and there's like a bunch of little numbers and the chicken will peck what it comes out to like to flawless precision and people just love it (laughs) and (laughs) and so I, i felt like it's a very very pointed satire on the fact that what draws the crowd is something that's really dumb. Whereas yep. this no armed, no legged guy is actually the one who's preserving these stories because at this time, you can't just Google like PB Shelley Ozymandias. Yeah. You might not even like find a book of it. Like it's, it's hardly there, but someone has to preserve it. And this guy is doing that by performing it and by spreading it and speaking it. But by the end, no one cares. They don't care about like oh. these really important historical documents they care about a chicken that can do math exactly and i feel like that might be almost like a corollary to the way people don't care about artistic films or anything anymore they just want Mm. to see something that entertains them
0: at a very low level and pay for that ah that's so true you're so right (laughs) yeah that one seemed to have of, of any of them that had any kind of like truly like deep social commentary that i think that was the one
1: yeah i felt pretty allegorical Mm -hmm. and then in the end neeson he goes after the money and he buys the chicken and drowns (laughs) it's implied that he throws this no armed no legged guy who by the way was dudley dursley in the
0: harry potter films ah okay (laughs) he throws him off of a bridge wow that was so horrifying when you realize what he's gonna do yeah that was a jaw dropper like i for me i got the impression that he was just gonna throw him off the bridge not that he was gonna kill him first or drown him like he was just gonna throw him into the water and sort of let him freeze to death yeah i guess that's probably what he did right yeah it's like what is he gonna do he can't fight back and was just so odd because i at the beginning of that one liam neeson he's treating him with such like what seemed to be like charity such like yeah classic charity feeding him like clothing him putting his makeup on yeah so it was horrifying <laughs> that
1: was a very depressing one it was <laughs> so yeah ballad buster Scruggs. i don't know we didn't get through every single one of the one of the little shorts
0: but i feel like you um, could the the topics that always come up for us with the coen brothers are always so so broad and amazing i feel like yeah. meaning they make me feel amazed um I almost feel like we could do another Buster Scruggs down the road.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: totally. Yeah.
1: And it's amazing just the way you can just forge these interconnections between all their stories, even though each one really stands alone. Exactly. Yeah, they're in pretty incredible filmmakers. They really I are. I'm glad that the, they still <sighs> made
0: the Ballad of Buster Scruggs, even though big studios suck. Yeah. And that's not us saying that. That's the Coen brothers talking about Disney yep. on our podcast. <laughs> yes. our podcast.
1: On our podcast
0: <laughs> they either hate Disney or just don't care
1: <laughs> one of those two <laughs> that is right
0: well uh, any it, last words I don't I don't think I do yeah except mm-hmm. I'll, I'll I'll leave our listener with uh, the 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 advice of martin heidegger who at one point in his light, uh, life later in his life was asked what should like what's one piece of advice you would give to individuals and his piece of advice was spend more time in graveyards he thought it's a good way to end it felt that people should contemplate death far more often than we do oh yeah yeah
1: all right enjoy your afternoon graveyard sojourn <laughs> yes listener. yes
0: please do <laughs> fairly well farewell <laughs>